0: Saul and David's relationship was complicated, to say the least. And here in the desert in southern Israel is where their strained relationship took a unique turn. Right here is where the hunter became the prey. Life has a way of giving you lots of opportunities, some that could be life-changing. Just because everyone thinks it's the right thing to do doesn't make it right in God's eyes. What do you do when your moment arrives and the pressure is on? You know, when it comes to our culture today, not even just today, but decades ago and centuries ago, one of the most actively discussed topics in our culture currently and for the past century is the topic of leadership. You think about it, hundreds of thousands, countless books have been written on the topic of leadership. There's been podcast after podcast, video after video, TED talk after TED talk, all on one of the most popular topics in our culture, of leadership, because at the end of the day, we want to be leaders. We want to be a leader in in our business, in our job, in our homes, in our communities, with our children. We're called to be leaders. And every leader, if you look back in history, every leader has had what I would call a defining moment, a moment where their leadership was propelled into the future, or they impacted a group of people. I mean if you just go back in history just a, a you know a couple years a couple hundred years you know you think of like a woman named Rosa Parks who was demanded to stand but she chose to sit. And she moved people. You think of a man named Martin Luther King Jr. who gave a speech about having a dream and that speech moved a nation. You think of a, a recent one, Captain Sullenberger who's Plane was failing and yet he led the plane to land on the Hudson River saving countless of lives You think of September 11th that flight that crashed down when a group of people said let's roll and they took down terrorists Saving countless lives you see every leader in their leadership has this defining moment where they have to make a choice where they have to choose the pressure is on in that moment propels them into their leadership. It changes people's lives. And we've been in this series called Portraits of a King, where we're looking at the life of King David, and we've seen some circumstances like this in David's life. We've seen him anointed the next king of Israel. We've seen him slay a giant. We've seen him bond with, in a friendship with Jonathan. And this morning, I think we're going to look at, at a moment in David's life that really showed us what kind of leader he was. He was marked by five things that really shaped the type of godly leader he was going to be. And this moment is often overlooked. It's not one of his significant moments, but it's the moment we're going to look at this morning. If you have your Bibles, 1 Samuel chapter 24. 1 Samuel chapter 24. I'd encourage you to turn in your Bibles there. We're going to walk through chapter 24 together. If you need a Bible, we'll provide one for you. It's going to be on page 234. You can take notes in your booklets on page 32. You can open in the North Ridge. App, or you can take notes on the program as well. And as you're waking, making your way to 1 Samuel chapter 24, I just want to take a second and welcome you to Northridge Church. Whether you're joining us from one of our campuses, you're one of hundreds who watch us online, or you're a guest kind of figuring out and, and, and trying out church, thanks for being here. We're honored and welcome That you're here this morning. And 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1, it kind of gives us our context for the story we're gonna look at this morning. It says this After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of Engedi. So here we're given a little bit of the context. Saul, who's the king of Israel, he's pursuing their mortal enemy a pagan empire nation called the Philistines. All throughout First and Second Samuel, you see this as a constant theme where Israel is fighting the Philistines. We saw it in the story of David and Goliath. And so Saul is pursuing, he's waging war with the Philistines, but then he gets word of what he seems like to be an even greater enemy, David. You see, remember, chapters 18 of 1 Samuel all the way to chapters 24, David and and Saul are playing this cat-and-mouse game where David is running for his life. He's hiding in caves, trying to remain, uh, stay alive, basically, and Saul is in hot pursuit of him. He wants him dead. Why? Because he's jealous. David has gained fame. The people of Israel love David, and Saul is ticked off about it, and so he wants David dead. And Saul gets wind that David is hiding in En Gedi, and if you've never been to Israel before, En Gedi is one of the most unique places in all of Israel. It's surrounded by miles and miles of desert, stony, hot, dusty terrain, void of any type of water. But in the middle of this desert is a place called En Gedi. It's an oasis. You got to see some clips of En on the screen this morning. It's this waterfall, tree, cavern place. It was a great place to hide if you were running for your life because you had to make it through the desert to get to En And it was a place where you could find food and water that would sustain you. And Saul gets wind that David is hiding there, so he responds. Verse 2, it says this. It says, So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all of Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way, and the cave was there. So Saul hears David's hiding. He knows where he's hiding. And so what does Saul do? He grabs 3,000 men. Now notice, this is about five times the amount of men that David has with him. David has his mighty men, strong warriors that were ready to battle if they had to. And so Saul goes to his army, and he probably picks out his best men. He probably finds his Navy SEALs, his Rangers, and he says, hey, get ready for a battle because I'm about to finish this because I know where David is. And they go in hot pursuit of David. They get to En Gedi, and it says there's a cave near, and they stop. Why do they stop? I love this point, part of the story. It says this simply, and Saul went in to relieve himself. <laughs> I love the Bible. <laughs> and the reality is, is Saul had to go poop. I mean, I don't know how to sugarcoat it any nicer, but that's just the reality. So Saul's on this journey to find David, and hey, nature takes his call, right? And in this culture, there wasn't like porta johns just kind of alongside caves. Like, no, a cave was your restroom. Nature was your restroom. And Saul says, hold on a second. And what's interesting is this is the most vulnerable place you would ever find a king. Because a king like our president today has a secret service. He would have been surrounded by soldiers at all times just in case an ambush would happen. But the only place he would be vulnerable is actually in this place. Because this was the only time that Saul would have said to his guards, give me a moment of privacy. I mean, it'd just be awkward if, it, if there wasn't privacy there. And so Saul steps into this cave to use the restroom. story picks up, verse 4, it says, David and his men... We're far back in the cave. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemies into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. And right here is David's opportunity. His enemy is going to the bathroom in the cave he's hiding in. I mean, how could you draw it up any better, God? And all of David's men are like jazzed and excited. They're like, David, look what God has done for you. Look how God has teed up the man who's trying to kill you, and he's laid him right in front of you. Take your shot. Let's end this. I mean, because let's be honest. David's men were probably tired of hiding in caves, scrounging for water and food. That's not the life anybody wants to live. Hey, let's bounce from place to place, running for our lives. And here God made a way for it to end. David was promised to be the next king of Israel by God, And it seemed like this was the opportunity. In order to become king, you got to get rid of the existing king. And here was God's opportunity laid in front of David to take out the king. So David does this. It says, then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscious stricken for having cut off the corner of his robe. And so David sneaks up behind Saul. And Saul is oblivious. He has no clue what's happening. And David begins to cut a piece of Saul's robe. And it says immediately, right after David cuts that piece of robe off, it says that he becomes conscious stricken. In other translations, it says it bothered his heart. And some of you might say, well, David, like, grow up. You just cut a piece of his robe. Why is that a big deal? But you have to understand the context and the culture of what's going on here. You see, in this culture, in this day and age, what you wore signified who you were. And so what you wore, based on your dress, it proclaimed to everybody else who you were. Saul would have been wearing a purple silk robe laced with gold because it pronounced his royalty. Here comes the king. Everybody knew where the king was because he wore this type of robe. Also, in this culture, to remove a man's garment, a piece of his garment, was like, much like removing a piece of his personality. It was one of the greatest insults to a man in this culture to remove a piece of his robe. And so here David is, faced with this decision. All of his men are saying, kill Saul. And remind you, these are godly men. These aren't like, hey, just jerks of guys, warriors. These are godly men who are following the Old Testament law. And they're like, David, God has lined this up for you. Take him out. But there's something in David's heart that is telling him not to. Now, let's pause here for a second. And let's just go back in time. Remember chapter 16? where God was looking for the next king of Israel. And he goes to the son of Jesse, and he walks through the seven oldest sons, not that one, not that one, not that one, seven times. And then David comes from the fields, and God looks at David, and guess what he sees? The right heart. And here you see, years later, it playing out in his life, the right heart that God saw. And here David is, his heart says no, but everybody else is saying, and here we get to see the marks of his leadership. The first one is a word I like to call discernment. Discernment. And here we see this in David's life. Discernment is when the noise is loud, when it's chaotic and it's crazy. It's being able to see beyond that, all of that and know which choice to make. That's what discernment is. And David is faced with this choice. His his guys are like, kill him, but his heart says no. And here's what, what really discernment. It's knowing which voice to listen to. It's understanding which voice should reign supreme in your life, and David, all the godly men in David's life were saying, "Take Saul's life." But God's voice in his heart was saying, "Hold off." And I think something we need to learn in our leadership today is discernment. That as Christians, in our discernment, we need to know that God's voice above every other noise, needs, above every other voice needs to be the loudest. And so David makes his choice. Verse 6, it says this, He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay a hand on him. For he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. And So David followed his heart. He listened to the loudest voice, God's voice. And he says, No, we will not lay our hands on the king. And he rebukes his men. And you want to talk about the worst moment for every single one of David's men. It says this, and then Saul left the cave and went on his way. Can you imagine how David's men must have felt? They're tired of living in rocky caves, barely having enough food to eat and drink. And there goes the opportunity to change that. There goes the king. The man who's trying to kill David, David just Let go. And right here you see that second mark of David's leadership, his integrity, his integrity. Something that I think that has been lost in our culture and in our leaders today is this word called integrity. Because really, it would have been easy for David to justify killing Saul. I mean, just for for a second, think about all the coincidence here. David's hiding in a cave. All of a sudden, uh, Saul decides to, to use the restroom in that cave. And it's the cave that all David's men are hiding. And you know how easy it would have been for David and his men to justify killing Saul? Like, this is obviously the hand of God. What are the chances? If you ever been in Getty? there's a ton of caves in the mountainside. This wasn't just like the only cave. I mean, you walk up in Getty, and there's cave after, cave after cave after cave after cave after hole after hole. And what is the coincidence? that Saul just has to go to the bathroom in the cave David and his men are hiding in. David could have easily justified killing him, but his integrity wouldn't let it. Because in the back of his mind, the Old Testament was shouting out loud, thou shall not kill. You see, David recognized something. He recognized that it's never the right time to do the wrong thing. There's never a good time to do the wrong thing. And man, how much do we need to learn that in our life, in our leadership today, is man, there is never a right time to sin. It doesn't matter how good it is. I mean, integrity is ultimately what you do when no one else is looking. And I know in, 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 in life, in, in, in office time, it's easy to maybe fudge your taxes a little bit to, to gain a little more income. But there's never a right time to do the wrong thing. I know it's easy, teenager, to to cheat on that test. You know your teacher won't catch you, but there's never a right time to do the wrong thing. And David understood that his integrity would not let him commit this crime. Something that's gone missing in our culture today. But look what David says about Saul, verse 6. It says, he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And man, every time I read this verse, I'm blown away. I'm like, wow. How can David say that about Saul? I mean, after all that Saul has put David through, he's running for his life for what? For helping Israel? For slaying a giant? For being best friends with your son? for being a godly leader like Saul, why are you trying to kill me? And here David is, calling the man who's trying to kill him, who's in hot pursuit every single day to kill David, and he looks at his men and he says, we will not touch my master, the Lord's anointed. And it just blows my mind that David could have this type of attitude for a man who was an ungodly king, who was trying to kill him. And here's that third mark of David's leadership that often, man, we forget about leadership. It's a word called submission, submission. You see, we don't tie this word with leadership because the leader's in charge. The leader doesn't submit to anybody, but David is a great example of real godly leadership in submitting to the people who God has put in power. In fact, it's amazing to me, here's here's what David recognized, that God placed Saul as the king. And until God removed Saul, David was going to submit to him. In fact, let me show you this. 1 Samuel chapter 10. You rewind the tape all the way back to God looking for the first king of Israel. It says this. When Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, This is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. You see, David recognized something. He recognized that God chose Saul. And it wasn't David's job to remove Saul. It was God's job. And how amazing is it? And how does that translate into our culture today? I mean, I don't even have to give you examples. But for a lot of us, man, we we, we serve under a a boss that is just a jerk. You don't agree with him or her. You, you, You can't stand their leadership. But I'm telling you something today. It says a lot about you to be able to follow somebody like that, to submit to somebody like that. Because we see it in David. We see him submitting to an ungodly king because God put them there. Teenagers, I know for some of you, it's really difficult to submit to your parents because you don't agree with their parenting style. You don't agree agree with all the strict rules. But I'm telling you, it says something about you, young person, when you can disagree with your parents and still submit to their leadership. Husbands and wives, it says a lot about you to submit to somebody who you struggle to love Who ignores you, who doesn't care about you, but God still calls you to love them and to submit to them. And then, where we see this in leadership. And David understood something. He understood that you'll never learn to lead until you first learn to follow, you'll never be a great leader. Some of you aspire to be a leader in your business. Some of you aspire to be a leader on the the, the field. Some of you aspire to be this great leader who does something significant. And I want to warn you, until you learn to follow first, you'll never become a great leader. And David understood this. I mean, David is, is anointed to be the next king of Israel. He knows his future. He knows he's going to be the leader. But all throughout this journey to being a king, God teaches David not how to lead, but he teaches him how to follow because he recognizes that if he can follow, he'll be able to lead. And How many of us, we want to lead because we want to be in charge. We want to make all the calls, and I think we fail to realize that's really not what leadership is. I mean, I look at my life. I'm the lead pastor of Northridge Church. And from the outside perspective, most people would think Drew makes all the calls. All the decisions run through my office. But to be honest and really to give you the reality is I spend more time as the lead pastor submitting than I do actually leading because that's what great leaders do is they give leadership away. They allow people to make calls. They give trust to people on their team to allow them to lead because in order to really truly lead, you have to learn to follow. And it doesn't matter what position you're in today, whether you're at the top of the organization or the bottom, whether you're a stay-at-home mom or a CEO of a company, at the end of the day, you're going to follow somebody. You're going to submit to somebody. If nobody else but just simply your heavenly father. We all are following somebody. And David realized, hey, I have to learn submission. And so he does something crazy. Verse 8, it says, Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My lord, the king... When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This is, this is the day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said I will not lay a hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of my robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe but did not kill you. See that, there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. Have I not wronged you? But you are willing to hunt me down and take my life. So what David does next is, is bold, it's courageous. Some would say it was stupid. Saul leaves the cave and David follows him. And David comes out and he confronts Saul. But notice something. Again, you see David's submission. David doesn't come out and confront Saul by pointing his finger at him. He had every right to do that. He had every right to to point his finger at Saul and say, look at this, and look at that, and look at that. But what does the Bible say? You know what it says about David? It says he gets on his knees, and that wasn't good enough. David lays prostrate down. His face is down on the ground before the king. You see, in this culture... When a king's presence was in there, people bowed. You, You were lower than the king. Everybody knew it. That was your place in life. The king was above everybody else. Even if it was a king worthy of following. And David lowers his head to the guy who's trying to kill him. And he says to him, Saul, I don't know why you're listening to your men that are telling you I'm trying to harm you. Here's the evidence, right? Here's your robe, Saul. Right here it is. God delivered you to me. And all my men were saying, take you out. And guess what? I spared you. I saved your life. David continues, verse 12, he says, May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrong you have done to me. But my hands will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds. So my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing, a dead dog, a flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hands. And so David does something, man, that took great faith. And that's that fourth mark of David's leadership. It's that word called faith. David steps out, and instead of killing Saul, he confronts him. And man, that might not seem like that big of a deal to you. But remember, Saul's trying to kill David. And David stepping out of the cave and confronting Saul, he's revealing himself. David spent the last years hiding from Saul, trying to escape his sight line. And now for some reason, he boldly says, here I am, Saul. I know you want to kill me. Well, right here I am. Can you imagine the amount of faith that took? And you see faith laced all throughout David's story. I mean, it took faith to step out into the fields and fight a giant. It took faith to put your hands in the prince of Israel's, the son of Saul's life. And it took faith to step out of that cave and say, Saul, right here I am. Right here I am. And you're trying to kill me, and I could have killed you, and here's the evidence. Because at the end of the day, Saul could have said, you know what, David, you're right. You're a better man than I am. Guards kill him it could have been that simple he was the king Saul was the king and whatever he said go went and it didn't matter what people thought he was the king what he said happened and and so David could have easily lost his life here and ultimately that's what faith is isn't it is trusting God without knowing the outcome It's putting your life in the hands of your Savior. That's what David does when he steps out of this cave. He says, God, I don't know what's going to happen here, but I believe you're leading me to this, and I'm not sure what's going to happen to me, but if I die here, God, that was your plan for me. And, man, I I think in, in Christianity we claim faith a lot, but I think we fail to realize what it really is because a lot of us, we claim faith, but we only step out in faith when we know all the answers. When God crosses all the T's and dots all the I's, that's when we have faith because what we crave the most is really control. I want to control my life and I wanna know where my life ends up and I know God, if you call me to something, you better show me where it is and you better show me what it looks like and you better show me the location and you better give me all the information or I'm not going, I'm not doing. You see, we say we have faith but we don't really trust God with our children because we will protect them at all costs. We we, we trust God kind of with our finances, but we expect him to bless us financially, and then we'll give to him financially. You see, we trust God when we're in control, and then we claim faith. That's really what faith is in American culture and church today. We we claim this beautiful thing called faith, but really what it is is us in control, and God, you kind of can tell us what to do. But David's like, you know what, God, I'll put my life on the line for you. And no matter what happens, I'll trust you. I'll trust you with my own life. So Saul responds, verse 16, it says, when David finished saying this, Saul asked, is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him go away unharmed? May the Lord reward you for the well may the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and the kingdom of Israel be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. And so the story begins to come to an end. Saul responds to David's accusations, and he says to David, you're right. You are a better man than I am. I have done wrong, and you have done right. And Saul begins to kind of get a picture of the future. It's starting to, to set into Saul's head that, wow, David is going to be the next king of Israel. God is obviously on David's side, and he's against me. And so Saul begins to repent, but honestly, he gives this false sense of humility to gain something. Again, you see where Saul is spiritually. All he's thinking about is is himself. And so he says to David, hey, I know you're going to be king, and you're going to be a great king, David. And he's giving David this false sense of humility to get something. He says, hey, just promise me, David, when I die and you become king, that you won't kill off my descendants. Promise me, David, because... In this culture, when a new king would come in line and he was from a different family, they would automatically wipe out the existing king's family because they didn't want to deal with the rebellion. They would just eradicate them. And so Saul, in this moment, sees again how selfish and how prideful he can be. He tries to get something from David, and David gives his oath to him, I won't kill your family. But now we see, at the end of the story, this last mark that David had of his leadership. Because look how this story ends. I think it would be easy to gloss over this line. It says, then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. And here we see this last mark. It's called wisdom. It's called wisdom, knowing how what choice to make. You see, it would have been easy for David at this point. Things are smoothed over with Saul, Right? Like we can go back to Jerusalem and we can go back to the kingdom and finally eat a good meal. My men can stop hiding. Things are okay with Saul. I confronted him. He was repentive, kind of, and let's go home. But David in his wisdom made the right call. And that's really what wisdom is. It's good judgment in difficult situations. And David made the right call. He saw through Saul's games. He saw through. Saul wasn't really repentive. This would just come back. And so look what it says. It says Saul went home. He went back to Jerusalem, back to the kingdom. But what did David do? David and his men stayed hiding. He wasn't fooled by the tricks of Saul. In fact, two chapters later, Saul and David are back at it again. This this same opportunity comes up where Saul tries to kill David, but really David has the opportunity to kill Saul, and David still doesn't take it. So so David, in his wisdom, was like, hey, Saul, I get it. I understand what you're saying. But me and my men, we're going to go this way. And you see the wisdom in this man. And and we look at a story like this. And we might ask this question, like, "This this is good stuff, Drew, but, like, how does it impact my life? I mean, this is David we're talking about. He's the leader of all leaders. I mean, he's, like, in the Bible, and he's, like, one of the most prominent leaders in all of Scripture. How in the world can I pull anything out of this? And I think we all need to be reminded, myself included, is that God has called us all, every single one of us, to be leaders. The reality is, is God, through his holy word, if if you claim to be a Christian, a, a person who said yes to Jesus, made them the forgiver of your sins and the leader of the life, if you follow Jesus with your whole heart, he's called you to be a leader. The question is, is how are you leading? I mean, let me show you just one example in the Bible. It says this in Matthew 5. It says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Man, that's just a verse on leadership. Jesus says, you, Christians are the light of the world. And guess what light does? It shines brightly. Guess what leaders do? They shine brightly. They stand out. When the status quo says that way, the leader goes this way. When the world's making bad choices, the leader says, I will not follow that direction. That's what leaders do. They're light in a dark and broken world. And guess what God has called all of us to be? Leaders. In your business. In your home. In your neighborhood in your office, in your cubicle, in your classroom, as a coach, as a husband, a wife, a parent, grandparent, retired. God has called us all to lead. And as we look at this story, really the question I really want us to to chew on and to marinate on all throughout this week to discuss in our community groups is really this question, what character traits mark your life? What character traits mark your leadership? I mean, as we look back at David's life and we look at the things that marked his life, can I just be honest with you this morning? When it comes to discernment, in my life, sometimes it's just easier to listen to the loudest voice. The voice of all the people in my ear rather than the voice of God. It's just easier to go with what's popular instead of what's true. When it comes to my life, integrity, sometimes it's just... Easy to make the easy decision. You know, the right decision is usually, not all times, but usually it's the harder of the two decisions. That's what stinks about it, right? And it's so easy to go the easy route. Convenience. You know, David, he chose the route of hiding in caves and and searching for food rather than the splendor of a kingdom because it wasn't right in God's eyes. How many of us would have chose that? Submission. You know, as leaders, we want to be the person in charge. Make all the calls. We want to dictate to everybody else what should happen. But David, as a leader, found himself face down on the ground, kneeling before a king who didn't deserve to be kneeled in front of. Can I be honest? Sometimes my fear drowns out my faith. Sometimes I'm just so scared to make the faith move, so I just go with the easy move, the fearful move. Sometimes it's just easy to make the quick move choice rather than the wise choice. And I don't know where you stand this morning, but I would ask you this. What marks your life? As a leader, I don't care if you're a male or a female. I don't care if you're young or old. God has called you to lead. What is marking your leadership? If you don't know the answer to that question, I'd encourage you to ask maybe some of the people closest to you. Maybe ask your family. Your spouse, your kids. Maybe ask the people you work with that you have influence over, the people under you. Ask them what kind of leader you are and give them full permission to be honest. Might be a scary day. But as we look at David's life, I would ask you this question What type of leader are you? Let's pray. Lord, not an easy question to answer. But the reality is, is, you've called us all to lead. And it doesn't matter where we find ourselves in life today. It doesn't matter if I, I stay ho- at home with my kids. It doesn't matter if I go to work every single day. It doesn't matter if I'm in school or in, in college. It doesn't matter if I'm designing computer programs or I'm sitting in a cubicle staring at my computer. You've called me to lead. And so, God, I pray that you give us all the courage to step in to discernment, to step into integrity, to submission, to step into faith instead of fear. Give us those marks, God, of a godly leader. Pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.